they felt that they had built an incredible company, something we had never seen in Canada before. A, a company that came from nowhere, uh, reached 20 billion in annual sales and, you know, gave the world smartphones, commercialized smartphones. And we know now how transformative that has been to society. That's Sean Silkoff, the co-author of Losing the Signal, along with Jackie McNish. If you think the rise and fall of BlackBerry is an open and shut case of two founders who couldn't see Apple coming, I think we need to think again. The fall of BlackBerry is nuanced. And if we could do 10,000 Monte Carlo simulations, we probably would see the same results. That's my opinion. And in this interview with Sean Silkoff, we're going to explore some high and low points in the story. We're going to hear why this very readable narrative is a great business case study. I'm Mark Gandy, and this is CFO Bookshelf. Before we get started, a quick shout out to Jackie McNish, Sean's co-author of Losing the Signal. I again, thank both of you two for the hard work and research you did to put this narrative together. Now, I didn't know this until Sean pointed this out, but Howard Green provides one of the praise blurbs, which can be found on the Amazon sales page for this book. And Howard, if that name sounds familiar, he's written one of my favorite books, Railroader, and he's also been a guest on this show. And that's where we started this conversation. You know, Howard's a, a great person uh, in the Canadian business journalism ecosystem. He actually wrote, um, he, you know, he wrote the blurb for the original edition of the book. And, uh, uh, you know, his his book, uh, Railroader, is a, is a classic. He's, uh, you know, he's, he's just a great guy. Love, love, love that book. Let's just kind of jump right into the book. And I want to compliment you on something, maybe not compliment you, but compliment Mike Lazaridis and Jim Basilli. At the end of the book, whether it's the the appendix, but after the last chapter, you talk about all of the hours that these two founders gave you. That actually surprised me because I would not have thought, and again, I didn't had not read that until after I read the book, I would not have thought they would have given you that much time. So I just want to say kudos to them for being open of sharing all this time with you, 20, 30 some odd hours each. Is that right? Uh, that's right. I think we calculated it was at least <clears throat> 25 hours each. It might've actually been more than that. Uh, we were very fortunate, you know, when we, we did this book, I think um, when we embarked on the project in the fall of 2013, early 2014, by then, Rim had sort of become a bit of a laughing stock on the business pages. It had seemingly made one mistake after another. Uh, it had this early lead in the smartphone race. Then Apple came along and everything <clears throat> seemed to fall apart. And I think we did a big piece for the Globe and Mail, which led to the book in the fall of 2013, How Blackberry Blew It. And both Jim and Mike were interested uh, and keen to participate in a book project, but they had one condition. They, they they felt that they had built an incredible company, something we had never seen in Canada before. A, a company that came from nowhere, uh, reached 20 billion in annual sales and you know gave the world smartphones, commercialized smartphones. And we know now how transformative that has been to society. Their one condition is, we want you to tell that part of the story too. We don't want this to just be a um 
you know, a, a story of miserable failure. Well, as storytellers, Jackie and I couldn't have been more pleased because that <laughs> this is a great arc. It's a rise and a fall story. And the rise to us was as interesting and in some ways more interesting and fascinating, probably about as interesting, I suppose, as the fall. So we we said, absolutely, we're completely committed to that. And to me, and I think to us, I should say, to us, I felt that uh, we felt that we were writing a great narrative that could serve both as a timeless story, but also as a great business case study. I, I foresaw that we would be able to tell this story and all the cautionary aspects of it and all the inspiring aspects of it. This could be a story that could be studied by uh, MBA students, as well as discussed by your aunt and uncle over a holiday dinner. And that's kind of how we approached it. And I think Jim and Mike appreciated that. I also think that that company had become so split, um, so riven by factions, so dysfunctional, that I genuinely believe that a lot of people who participated in the big book did so because they actually wanted to find out what happened. I think all of them had missing um, gaps in their understanding of what had happened. And I think both of them and many other participants learned something, uh, learned a few things that were quite surprising to them from reading the book. It is a big deal to write a book like this. I was telling you before we hit record, I just finished reading Working by Robert Caro. And obviously, you write a book like uh, the power broker that has over 1 million words to it. Oh, by the way, he cut out 350,000 words, and that's not counting the four books he wrote on LBJ. To do a work like this, you had to do your research. You do your research. Now you got to put all these facts into a narrative, as you said. Can I be real nosy? How long did it take you and your co-author after you did the research? I guess you'd say when you started the research, how long did it take you to then get it finished in book form? It depends how you measure this. Okay. So the minute Jim and Mike stepped down from RIM in early 2012, my newspaper, The Globe and Mail, assigns three reporters to try to find out the story. Um, they were at that for about a year and a half. I came in later because I lucked into Jim actually reaching out to me on an unrelated story and building a relationship with him for close to a year on matters that had nothing to do with RIM. The core research of that story in the Globe and Mail that I mentioned was six weeks, plus that year and a half of work that the three reporters, including Jackie, had done. But uh, the core part of the downfall story was information I was able to get because some key doors open that had been unavailable to the Globe and Mail. So that story is pub- so just to give you a sense of the timeline, that story is published late September 2013. We have our book deals ready to go, and we start essentially full-time in January 2014. We've, of course, accumulated a little bit of reportage up to that point, but the core interviews did not start until January 2014. We submitted a draft, I think, about 10 months later, nine to 10 months later. And my feeling is that between Jackie and I, we put about three person years into that 10 months. Um, we were working around the clock. I uh, <laughs> I would sit in my dining room and 
at a certain point, I, I would wake up very early. I had young kids running around the house. I was able to sort of um, almost block them out of my peripheral vision. I owe my kids and my uh, my wife eternal thanks for for putting up with me in my zombie like state. And I would work until 11, 12 o'clock and I figured out how to pitch my chair back in such a way that I could rest my head perfectly on the credenza behind me and essentially pass out for a few hours and then wake up and start over again. Um, I look at the book sometimes and what we were able to accomplish. I'm amazed that we were able to do that in, uh, in the short period we did. Uh, of course, there was additional reporting and rewriting that happened after we submitted the draft in, um, I think in late September or early October of 2014. And the book was, of course, published in May, but I think the book was pretty much set and ready to go by, I'm going to say maybe February, early March. It's a bl- bit of a blur that period, as you can imagine, because there was also fact checking. But yeah, we, we put all this together in an incredibly short amount of time. And I think both Jackie and I are incredible workhorses and, uh, and, and we're somehow we're able to do this. I don't, I don't know how, when I, when I look back, because it's an incredible amount of work. And also I like to joke that we left an entire book out of this book. We had a narrative, uh, Jackie spent, uh, Jackie, uh, has written, had written three books before. There's a lot of experience in business narrative, and really led the way in helping to map out the narrative flow of the story. Um, we had a, a, a document that was maybe 60 or 80 pages long, I think for the first half, and then another one for the second half. We had Google, Google Docs that were hundreds of pages long, where we had all of our information accumulated. Getting that arc right, getting that story flow right, was of the utmost importance. And it really helped guide where and how we told the story and we introduced the little bits and pieces. But as I said, we left a book out of the book, which is to say that we had we had a whole chapter, for example, planned on the network and how it grew from this ramshackle thing running off someone's laptop that you could unplug by tripping over a cord into this sophisticated failover system with its own uh, facilities, et cetera, et cetera. And you know what? It was just a chapter that was going to take away from the narrative. The, narr- the narrative was like this pulsing engine. We needed that story to move and keep moving. And we had a narrative and a narrative arc to honor. And anything that sort of took us off of that was something that we had to think twice about. And I think the book benefited from some of the what felt like at the time tough decisions we took to ensure that we were not losing readers along the way from the core story. What is the origin story of, of Mike and Jim? And as you, as you do that, Sean, you might want to state, you know, Mike's background, his, his persona, uh, Jim, a little bit different, obviously from, from Mike, but let's talk about the beginning. And I'll just say this, these guys were incredibly intelligent. I mean, like intelligent as in on another planet. These are not two average minds, right? Am I correct? 
you're you're absolutely right. It's almost providence how they how they find finally met. Neither of these two were actually from Waterloo. Mike's parents were uh, Greek immigrants from Turkey. He actually grew up in Windsor, which is a big auto plant town, and he was he was a boy genius. He's that that kid who could fix anything. We have a story about how there was a, a major disaster in one of the technical labs he worked in and in walks Mike full of confidence. Uh, the teacher says, can you fix this? He says, sure. We used to have a quiz show in Canada called reach for the top, which is a bit of a forerunner, I think to uh, probably to, to jeopardy and uh, these high school kids would come on and they'd have to hit a buzzer and, um, and answer uh, skill testing questions. And uh, to, to practice, the uh, the kids in his high school had a, a buzzer mechanism that kept breaking, so he built them one that wouldn't break, and it was so successful he sold it to all the other high schools. Um, he was the he was a boy genius. He um, I think he tried to build a, a record player out of Lego, and it's interesting. He went to this high school in Windsor where. It was a, almost like a caste system. The kids on one floor were heading for the white collar jobs in the auto plants, and the kids on the other floor were heading for the plants, uh, for for the blue collar jobs. And so you got a different STEM kind of education depending on what level you were on. Mike was one of those rare characters who was comfortable on either level as a technical thinker, but also as someone who could get his hands dirty and and put things together. He was a tinkerer and he was very, very good at it. And he ends up in, in Waterloo, uh, university of Waterloo. And, um, uh, he's inspired by a teacher who tells him, you know, forget about computers. The person who can put computers and wireless technology together is going to create something special that always stayed with him. So that's Mike. And, and Mike started, he dropped out of university to start this little company, called rim which wasn't really going anywhere fast so that's the mike story up to a point then we have jim jim comes from this small town of peterborough um ontario his uh, father was a uh, metis which means he um came from a mixed uh, indigenous and uh non-indigenous background uh both of these two were outsiders jim grew up um he was cheeky and mischievous but also very bright he um early on and, and jim was both ambitious but also very distrustful of authority but he wanted to be a somebody uh there's an author in canada named peter c newman who wrote a book called the canadian establishment and jim read this book religiously and he discovered that you had to do three things to make it in canada uh you had to um uh you had to go to trinity college which is an exclusive college within university of toronto you had to go work for the uh, establishment accounting firm of clarks and gordon and then you had to go to harvard business school jim checked every one of those boxes off although by the time he got to harvard and he's surrounded by you know the semi-royalty that attends harvard he said he felt like he was in a class full of uh, nobel prize winners and he felt like the one fraud there when all of his fellow graduates went off to jobs on wall street he took a sharp turn and he stead went uh, to Waterloo to work for a tech company. Uh, Jim had learned early on at his time at Clarkson Gordon that uh, technology and mastering technology is um, a way to move up an organization fast because you're becoming an innovator. You're learning how things are going to be in a world where 
your colleagues don't yet, and you become very valuable. So technology is a shortcut to rewriting business rules and to making yourself the most important person in the room. So Jim at age 20, nothing uh, probably was invited to partner meetings and such. He was, he was the one going through all the Lotus files because, uh, because that was the breakthrough program that nobody else knew how to use at the time. So he recognized the opportunity. He was invited by a Canadian entrepreneur, come to this small company called Sutherland Schultz. You'll be my right-hand man. Uh, you'll, you'll advance to the top. And Jim realized, you know, rather than duking it out with people who had better pedigrees um, and connections than he did on Wall Street, he could climb faster at the small company. And that's what he did. And that's where he sort of got his, uh, th- that's where Jim cut his teeth as a, as an executive, as a negotiator. He wasn't well liked by a lot of the people there. He was, uh, he was relentless. He uh, didn't believe in flowers and accolades. He was a tough guy. And in fact, one of his assignments was going to this little company called Research in Motion and trying to <laughs> browbeat a better deal out of this poor little company that was supplying components to Sutherland Schultz. So that's how he met Mike. And one more thing about Jim, he was incredibly savvy. He knew how to negotiate with probably anybody. Well, yes. And it's interesting. I mentioned the book, The Canadian Establishment. By the time he got to university and into the work world, he'd abandoned The Canadian Establishment for another book, uh, the rather famous one, The Art of War by Sun Tzu. Exactly. I don't know about you, but I went to business school in the late 80s and early 90s. And The Art of War at that time was like the book that everyone had tucked under their arm. You wanted everyone to see that you had it, uh, that you understood it. You could talk about it. Jim actually was probably one of the few people who read the thing and, and applied it and, and applied it, uh, like, um, like a prophet or like a, I mean, it was his calling to put this book into action. And a lot of Rin's success, uh, is owed to the way that he did. Um, two of the key lessons from that book are, uh, appear strong, no matter what your position is in battle. Don't panic. And the other is uh, take your aggressor to uneven ground because you have a better chance of gaining the advantage in that situation. And I think you could say that our book is full of stories like that, at least on the way up, on the way up. I mean, he outsmarted giants like Motorola and Microsoft and Nokia and the telecom carriers. And that was Sun Tzu inspired stuff all the way. I want to skip ahead because I think most people, unless they've been living under a rock, most people know about the rise of REM and use the word transformative uh, a few minutes ago. So let's jump right into they're big. They've maybe a plateaued. So there are a couple of things I pulled out of the book. One of them is what I call the two-legged stool. Now, I'm going to blame my question on Mary Childs because she wrote the book, The Bond King, and she has a chapter or a section called The Three-Legged Stool, uh, the three people who started PIMCO. Well, here we have the two-legged stool, Mike and Jim. Help me out, Sean. Did I miss something? Was there ever a third leg to the school, the stool, because it's predominantly 
Mike and Jim throughout the entire course of the book. Well, I think there was a third key player at RIM. His name was Larry Conley. And one of the important points that we make in the book is that Larry Conley, and I'll tell you about him in a second, he left the company in 2009, right when they most needed him. So right when the wheels are starting to fall off, Larry Conley, the person who had who had been that third leg, had left. And so it exacerbates the downfall and it makes things look worse than they do, probably because he's not there. He, he does come back briefly in 2011. <clears throat> so let me tell you a little bit about Larry Conley. Larry Conley was this tough no nonsense, um, big, big character, literally like a, like a very large person who came into RIM because they needed a sheriff. They needed someone who could take this unstructured, technically brilliant, but, um, rather scattered company and, um, and, and get everything operating on time, on budget. Larry came from Motorola. And it was a tough, a tough environment in Motorola in its glory days. There's a great story about someone saying, you know, this radio is perfect and uh, his boss saying, oh yeah. And <laughs> jamming a pen into it and throwing it back and him saying, it's not perfect now. Um, unfortunately, Motorola, by the time Larry Conley had left in the, uh, in the early, uh, 2000s, I think had become what was referred to as, um, uh, uh loose confederacy of warring tribes. It wasn't the Motorola he'd grown up in for the better part of three decades. So he comes into RIM to basically help out and he immediately finds, you know, this technically advanced group of people with poor discipline and coordination. It's still run like a startup, even though the BlackBerry as a device is taking off and becoming this star product around uh, North America and elsewhere. Um, everything goes up to Jim and Mike for decisions um, they lack any strategic objectives, one-year plan, no one-year plan to speak of. Nobody knows the costs. Uh, when you ask someone, when is this device supposed to be delivered? You get six months to two years. People didn't know. And um, all things went through Jim and Mike. So Larry builds up this credibility and brings that sort of adult supervision to the company. A lot of the early engineers did not like that. They They didn't like working for a big establishment company. They were like outlaws. They wanted to remain mavericks. And I think Larry put in place a much needed culture that was going to lead to a lot of departures, but was also going to lead to that company being successful. Um, at the same time, remember, this is a, not a software company. It's a hardware company. And it was growing at points 25% quarter over quarter, quarter to quarter, like from Q1 to Q2 to Q3. And imagine you're not just selling more enterprise software. You are stamping out metal and glass. And that was incredibly difficult. And Larry, like everyone else, struggled to make that happen. And and the company would inevitably hit supply chain challenges at the worst time after Larry had left. Now, there were actually two COOs because you had a two-headed CEO team. You, each of them had their own COO. And Larry felt by a few years into the job that he should really be president. He should be the one person that all decisions went through and then up to Mike and Jim. He had that rare combination of things at RIM. 
he was just about the only person who could go into Mike's office and say he disagreed with Mike. Mike was the genius who had a lot of faith in himself and the science behind what he was doing. Larry could actually push back and not get thrown out of his office. Um, Larry Conley also had what, um, what many people refer to as a pocket veto. He could go into a meeting and represent Jim and Mike. And if you've worked in an organization, you know how powerful that person is. Usually it's the chief of staff. I've been in meetings uh, when I w- briefly worked um, for a crown corporation up here in Canada. And the chief of staff to the CEO was the most powerful person at a table surrounded by C-levels when the CEO wasn't there. Because when she spoke, we knew that we were hearing the word of God. <laughs> and Larry was kind of that person. Uh, Larry Conley was that person. So he leaves in 2009 and almost immediately that culture of accountability um, leaves with him and things get loose and lazy, uh, inertia and frustration set in at the senior levels. And this is at a time when, when Rim can least afford, um, to not be disciplined and have everyone on the same page. So I, I would agree that that third of the leg of the stool was not there when they needed it the most, but it had been. Before things start unraveling, there was a consulting firm, Protivity. So they had this report. And when I get to that part of the book where the Protivity reports mentioned, I actually stopped what I was doing. I did a search. I put PDF in the, in the, uh, right before Protivity report, nothing, nothing, but First of all, what what report is it that I'm describing? And you're smiling. You bring up what was one of the great joys of putting the book together, which was stumbling upon or finding or being sent all kinds of information that had never seen the public eye. And that was one of the great joys of this book, because, you know, if we had set out to write a book about Apple, say, there's many books, Apple's been picked over. There's, or other companies you'd think, well, there may not be a lot of secrets left to write about. RIM was a relatively unknown company in terms of its inner machinations. And I think that the company had uh, done that intentionally in a way. And so we were coming upon all kinds of treasures uh, in terms of the storytelling. We got access to quite a lot of uh, internal documents. And one of them was this Protivity report. And so what had happened was there was a stock options backdating scandal. A lot of companies, tech companies were targeted. RIM was one of those companies that was in the crosshairs in part because this was a company that communicated so heavily by email. You can imagine that's their core product that they left quite the paper trail of uh, instructions and discussions about backdating people's opinions about the backdating that they were doing. And so one of the things that comes out of the settlement with the regulator in Canada is that they have to bring in this consultant, um, which they do reluctantly, Protivity. Protivity is is greeted like a, a hostile invading force. The company did not help very much. Um, they viewed this process as costly, wasteful, um, irritating, etc. After that time, Protivity produced this long report that proved to be actually quite perceptive. Um, they reported that there were still problems with uh, lax option granting uh, accountability issues at the executive level. There were no standards for measuring the CEOs, their accomplishments, no written job descriptions or performance objectives, 
Uh, they found that employees were not being held accountable for meeting their objectives. They had some um, unkind things to say about the board. The board was not being kept apprised of things that were happening. It's a it's a pretty punishing look at how this company was run and governed. And the amazing thing is there was a Pertivity report that came out, but it was sort of a whitewash and it was buried um, on the regulator's website. It didn't come out for months. Nobody even noticed it. And it didn't contain most of these hypercritical parts of their original report. I think it was maybe 12 or 16 pages, uh, which is uh, maybe about uh, a tenth of what they originally put out. One of their big recommendations is that they should have an independent chairman who's strong and leads a strong board. Well, the next thing that happens is that RIM fills the chairman role that has been vacant for three years, and they put Jim and Mike back into it. Right. So it's like that whole exercise was just swept to the side. It's it's quite astonishing in retrospect when you when you read this and, and realize it. We'll be right back. Money is all around us and we think about it more than almost every other aspect of our lives. But how can we make more of it and what's our drive for building wealth beyond just the numbers in our bank account? Join us on the Make More podcast as our host, Matt Heslin, brings to you a dynamic lineup of experts in the world of investing, business, health, and beyond. Together, they unpack the secrets to not just surviving, but thriving in today's economy. It's about more than just wealth. It's about crafting life experiences, seizing opportunities, and building a legacy. Subscribe now to the Make More with Matt Heslin podcast and join us every week for new expert insights and inspiration. One last thing before we go forward, you mentioned the board. That's also brought up. And again, we're talking near those last few years before Mike and Jim exit RIM. This was not a good board of directors. And I'm my interpretation, you may have to help me here, this type of a business there in Canada, they didn't have that experience. And maybe that's not a reason, but... Again, I was a little disappointed that they didn't have a stronger board of directors. It's true. It's like that textbook, where was the board type of anecdote. When you looked at the board, it was a lot of small town, local business people, not a lot of folks who were steeped in um, industry expertise or sophistication. And... um they mostly defer to Jim. Jim was a very commanding presence and strategically very strong person. So I think they deferred a lot to him and, and they loved Mike. Mike would always talk about devices. Mike wasn't really the governance guy. He wasn't, he wasn't really into that stuff. He was the technical person who trusted Jim to, 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 to lead the company in that way. And they loved seeing what was coming next. And I guess it can be great to have a board that doesn't get in the way and asks uh, annoying questions uh, when things are going great, but it's not so great when the company is falling apart and is lacking strategic direction to not have board directors with a clear sense of where the company should be going. I think the one thing you also have to remember is that this company was creating fire. I mean, they, they created a new way of doing things and selling things. They broke a lot of rules. They wrote a lot of rules. And 
there's not necessarily a lot of people, particularly in Canada, who have that experience or anywhere. So I think there was a um, a fairly thin talent pool for them to draw from. Remember that they're still a startup, a scrappy startup. And you could argue that a few years later, they might have been able to draw from a, a more mature and global and sophisticated and deep talent pool to fill that board. And in fact, later on, they did bring on some big names like Roger Martin, although Roger Martin didn't necessarily have the most effective suggestions for how to fix the company when things really were going off the rails. You mentioned the stock options a few minutes ago. So there may be a couple of those gaps. We talked to, talked about the very, very beginning. There may be some former employees who maybe either A, didn't know about this or didn't remember, but I've got two items that I'm not going to say caused the cracks in the foundation. It didn't help as this thing called Apple and Steve Jobs started to service. But again, you have this whole issue with the stock options and then this patent case that just took a lot of time to deal with. You can pick any of those you want or both, but is it true that the stock options problem and dealing with these patent trolls took a lot of time away from important business? Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. Um, the patent case... Rim kind of came into that situation not expecting to lose and did so poorly in the original trial that Mike, who was handling it and appeared on the stand, was, I mean, he doesn't even remember what happened afterward because he was so traumatized. He sort of vanished for two weeks. It it really left him reeling and devastated. And then Jim tried to fix things afterward and they pulled all the strings. I mean, they were doing heavy lobbying. They appealed decisions in up the patent courts. Uh, they appealed things in the courts. And the only way to get out of this was ultimately because of things that we map out in the book was to strike this very expensive settlement with the patent troll that sued them. Now, that settlement was far better than what they could have had. If they had to pay an ongoing royalty, this would have cost them billions and billions and billions of dollars instead of the 600 million and change that they ended up paying. So they walked away with the best of a bad situation, but it was bruising and distracting and punishing. And it took a lot out of those two. I mean, we're and it talking, took a lot out of the company. We're talking a whole year, right? Roughly? Oh, we're, we're talking years. I mean, oh, it was years. Fr from the beginning of the patent um, situation until it was resolved, I think was about, I forget exactly, four to five years, I think. Now, the options case was Which, by even the way, more critical in a different way. And was that before the patent issues? One was resolved and then the other, so it, it was like one after the other uh, because the backdating situation starts to develop, I think, around the mid-2000s and then becomes an ongoing issue, 2006, 2007. They're in the middle of dealing with that when the iPhone is released. Now, we set out with this book to answer three questions. How did RIM become a $20 billion company and change the way the world communicates? How did it all fall apart? And what led to the effective divorce between Jim and Mike? the schism that led to the end of their relationship. And 
that one was probably the most important question to answer in some ways. And it was the hardest one to answer because we had to do a lot of homework. We had to get a lot of people talking and we had to come back and ask them both the same questions a few times until we kind of unlocked it. And the dynamic with the stock options backdating situation, a lot of companies were backdating. RIM was unfortunately the poster child. It was the one that was really held up. And there were points in that process where Mike in particular worried that the company would be taken away from them. And it killed his desire. And he started to hold that against Jim. He was really angry about that and upset, deeply upset. And there's a bit of a difference of opinion between the two of them in what actually happened, but we report that Mike's team asked for leniency. Now, from Jim's perspective, that's where he felt betrayed because he felt Mike and he had gone into battle shoulder to shoulder. They'd had each other's back. There had been times when Jim had saved Jim's side of the business had saved Mike's side of the business. And when he heard that Mike had sought a different outcome than him, he felt uh, betrayed and hurt by it. The problem was that they weren't allowed to talk about this for months until all of this was settled. So this all boiled up be- beneath the surface. And it finally came out in a meeting that Jim has a better memory of than Mike. and. They had it out a little bit, and that didn't really resolve things. There was sort of a coolness between them at an interpersonal level afterward. Now, they continued to run the business. They continued to talk about the business. But as people described to us, you could tell that mom and dad weren't getting along anymore. Rita McGrath has a book called Sing Around Corners. Very readable. So she's a great author. Here is my opinion about Mike and Jim. And please bear with me, Sean. This may be a long question. I am not going to ever, after reading your book, I wouldn't have said this before, but now reading your book, I do not view Mike and Jim as failures. Far from it. Again, these guys are brilliant. Even if they could see around corners, I think we have this tragedy happening with REM, and here's why. And again, these are in the book, especially Mike. Mike wants a simple piece of hardware. He wants long battery life, not a lot of distractions. So again, he has this paradigm, this point of view, this way of thinking, And I think that's really what's the issue at hand with REM starting to fall. It's not that these guys were idiots and couldn't see ahead. They wanted to keep things simple. Now, in the book, you mentioned Clayton Christensen, Creative Disruption, Disruptive Innovation. Again, and I'm going to ask you an unfair question. Your job is to share the truth. Even with the narrative, your job is to share truth. But now I kind of want to ask your opinion. Do you think this business, it was inevitable that this thing could fall, that we could have this tragedy that we saw because of Mike's 
strong point of view with keeping technology simple. That was a long-winded question. I hope I didn't ruin this conversation by me doing most of the talking, but I wanted to set this up because I think business students can think, boy, these guys just blew it. They screwed up. They, they, they didn't, they couldn't see this happening from the beginning. My opinion is even if they did see Apple coming a year ahead, I don't know if the result is that much different. I think that's what makes this such a compelling case study of the situation, which is what we saw as we started to put all this together. The BlackBerry is the perfect device for 1999 or 2000. It solves a new problem, which is dealing with an onslaught of email that we're all dealing with circa that period of time. It can get it into people's hands in a way that respects the constraints that ruled the galaxy of telecom at the time. It doesn't suck a lot of battery power. It doesn't take up a lot of network space. It's easy to use. It's relevant to use. At the time, BlackBerry is up against machines like the Nokia 9000 communicator or the Palm Pilot that are kind of the best and or or the machines that Windows was powering, the Palm type devices it was powering, the PDAs that were the best that Silicon Valley could throw at the problem. And they were trying to put too much on a device. Uh, these devices were clumsy. They were nice to haves, not need to haves. They tried to put a computer in your palm. Mike and Jim and their teams realized you didn't have to put a computer in people's palm. The BlackBerry was not a computer. It was basically a glorified radio with a very skinny software layer on top of it. And that worked. And when all the carriers were talking about 3G and how much data you were going to be able to put through the network, Mike and Jim convinced everyone, you know what? Two and a half G is just fine. And by the way, we have the perfect device for it. And for years, for six, seven years, they were right. And here comes Silicon Valley again in early 2007, trying to put a computer in people's hands. And Mike saw right away, you know, Jesus, iPhone, it's going to suck batteries dry. Guess what? It did. It did. It's going to clog up the network. Guess what? It did. AT&T and Apple were sued because of so many dropped calls people had because their network was getting clogged. It's not as secure as the BlackBerry, he said. For early devices, he was right. And he said people are going to hate typing on glass. And, you know, typing on glass 15 years later still sucks. (laughs) I'm sorry, you do not get typos on a BlackBerry like you do on the Apple. And they can be really embarrassing. We all still make autocorrect. If we don't make the mistakes, autocorrect makes them for us sometimes. So he was right about all that. But it didn't matter because once Apple put the full internet in people's hands, um, that's what they wanted. There's a couple of other very important dynamics you have to remember as well that I think we give proper play to in the book. Talking about operating within constraints, RIM grew up and navigated in an era where the telcos were all powerful and really held them back from what they could do. They couldn't do apps. An app in 2006 was a ringtone or a very crappy rudimentary little game because that's all that the carriers would let them do. Carriers didn't want them to have BBM. And if they put browsers on, they had to be these little baby browsers, which for those of your listeners who are too young to remember, were awful and kind of a joke. And in fact, Steve Jobs 
made fun of them when he unveiled the iPhone. But that's all that Rim thought it could get away with. And then here comes Apple waltzing in and it offers a full browser. And somehow AT&T lets that happen. So the carriers hadn't let Rim do that. Rim might have tried a lot earlier to actually put a full browser on. And so Rim then studies, how do you put a browser on the phone? And they take some time to do that. They buy a browser company and it takes them a while to realize that the operating system underneath that browser is not sufficient. So they had to waste a lot of time and it took them years to come up with their proper operating system. Six years from the time the Apple appeared until the time BlackBerry's proper full operating system, computer-like operating system came out. Uh, it took them six years to get there. Nobody has six years in technology to catch up to the competition. But something else happened that's you cannot underplay, and that's the following. The carriers have been very protective of their of apps. They wanted the little the walled garden, it was called. They didn't want any handset makers to impinge on that. Well, AT&T allows Apple to open up an app store. And then Verizon, when they brought on the Droid, told Google, you can do that too. BlackBerry had never really needed to work much on consumer-facing apps for two reasons, because the carriers wouldn't let them and because most of their apps were built for enterprise. So Java was fine for that. Google and Apple were both computing companies steeped in software. So they had better apps, more compelling offerings from the get-go. And not only that, but when Google came to prominence, and of course we talk about this in the book, that was an opening left by RIM with Verizon. When they came on, they did something absolutely insidious that pulled the rug out from underneath RIM. They said, you know what? We get the 30% of app sales that we get on our app stores. Hey, carriers, you can have that. They gave the carriers instant revenue and were basically incentivizing every carrier in the world to offer Android devices. And they were also offering their operating system for free to any handset maker that wanted to put Android out there. So these were incredibly destabilizing things for RIM. And it's hard to know how anyone could have responded. They had been following the rules that they had rewritten in the face of these monolithic carriers. And suddenly the carriers are opening doors to their Silicon Valley competitors that had never been open for them. I really appreciate this part of the discussion because when we talk about business failure of any kind with REM, it's nuanced. It's There's a a rest of the story. So we're not talking to founders who are just incompetent. It's just not the case. So, and he used the term case study. Absolutely. I will add, I will interject. And you didn't mention this, even when they came out with their first two products to compete uh, first with the iPhone and then with the iPad, they were terrible <laughs> products. Even when they came out with them, uh, which which device was it the the first response to the iPhone where you had to have the the email was not synced you had to have a separate app to, and it's like now wait a minute these are the people who put email on the map for your phone so i was just going to say the two products the competing products were just terrible 
they were they were great innovators and terrible followers. Um, you're talking about the playbook, which was their um, their tablet, and it's amazing to think that this company had gone in little over a decade from removing think points. That's the way they referred to it. You know, making the BlackBerry so compelling and uh, vital to use that uh, you would use it instead of actually sitting down at your desktop and re- and writing an email there to this playbook that didn't have native email. And if you wanted native email, as you said, you had to go through a series of steps. And by that point, they weren't even solving a customer problem anymore. They were solving a BlackBerry problem. And uh, it's amazing to see how, how that had shifted. I, I think they realized that they were desperate. They had their backs up against the wall. This was the first enterprise grade device Apple had come up with. And they saw it as a real destabilizing threat to their enterprise business. So they needed something fast. They had to cut corners. They had to get a product out there. And they made that decision that probably stands as one of the most regrettable decisions RIM RIM did in that period. Is this story still relevant today? I think so. Uh, I think if you boil it down to its takeaways, um, I would argue that there are some fairly timeless viewpoints that would apply to any other situation. Success and innovation is a result of a, a very complicated mix of having the right product, the right marketing, uh, marketing it to the right people in the right place in the right time. Good products help you do something you were doing before more effectively and efficiently. But great products can significantly transform how a task is performed to such an extent that it reorders the world by more broadly reshaping human behaviors and economic activity. I would say that was the case of the BlackBerry. So with a successful product, you can set standards and ground rules, establish leadership in a global race. But the race does not end. Incumbents shape the rules of the race, but there will always be innovators trying to bend or break the rules or establish their own. And so product people have to constantly be aware of and be beware of innovators. You may be winning the race now, but you could lose it later. And you may have redefined the rules, but someone else is going to redefine them from underneath you. And you're going to lose your position in that race. And you need to just view that as an inevitability, no matter how innovative and how smart you are. And I think that's the lesson that Jeff Bezos has taught us for decades. I think that's the day one approach of Amazon and why that company is so powerful and so fearsome and so successful because he could see the digitization of the business around him way back in 2003 and 2004 and made a series of decisions that led to such things as the Kindle and Amazon Prime and so on and so forth. And those decisions date back to years before they ever seemed relevant to the average person. So I, I think I think that's a lesson that applies across business. Um, and I think these were some of the insights we could pull out of that book, our book. Before I ask you another favorite question of mine, am I allowed to congratulate you and Jackie of something uh, that we just heard about that just came out in the news? I think it's recently. Am I allowed to congratulate you for? You may, you may. <laughs> uh, this is going to be turned into a movie, right? Big screen. That's right. Uh, it's been made by um, a couple of Canadian production companies. It's got some great names attached to it. Uh, Jay Baruchel, 
Glenn Howerton are playing the leads. Uh, there's a few recognizable names in the cast, including Carrie Elwes, who was uh, in The Princess Bride. He was the uh, he was the love interest, and um, it's uh, it was just announced in advance of the Toronto International Film Festival in Variety magazine. And I have been hearing from everybody. It's been nice. That is remarkable. Okay, I ask this to every single guest I talk to. I love asking this question to authors. You are a journalist. I'm assuming, I could assume incorrectly, that you are a reader yourself. Can I be nosy and ask, what are some of your favorite books? Well, my favorite business books are, I actually have quite a list. The book I'm reading right now is Lights Out about uh, the fall of GE, and it's great. I think everyone should read it. It's a long book, um, but I'm I'm really enjoying it. And uh, I, I think there's a lot of interesting lessons there. And it's very sobering and, and kind of depressing, to be honest with you. Uh, some recent books I really enjoyed, uh, like a lot of uh, people, uh, The Cult of We about WeWork is fantastic. Bad Blood is essential reading about Theranos. It's a lot of fun, too. Um, fun, but painful, of course. Uh, you know, a few classics like Barbarians at the Gate, obviously. I'm going to name a few books that might not be obvious, but are are really great business books. Neil Gabler did a very comprehensive study of Walt Disney, uh, his rise uh, through being a, a young animator to being an entrepreneur. And it's incredible. I love that book. It's terrific. Say, I can't say, the, author, say, say the author again. Neil Gabler, okay. G-A-B-L-E-R. He's written a bunch of books about Hollywood. It, it, it's it's such an important and interesting book, <clears throat> in particular because you come to realize that Walt Disney, for most of his life, did not enjoy, and his company did not enjoy the financial success that we take for granted with the Disney Corporation now. Um, and you come to appreciate just how hard it was to build the business. It's a warts and all look. Uh, uh, he made some very controversial decisions along the way. Um, and it, it is a really great, really great read. Uh, one of my favorite books, uh, economics books, is The Rise and Fall of American Growth, um, which looks at, uh, which tracks economic growth from 1870, I believe, from the Civil War till 1970. I'm going to give you one more. Um, that I really enjoyed. Um, uh, an old, I'm going to give you two more that I really enjoyed. An old classic, Indecent Exposure, probably one of the first bi- great business narratives about a really great book about the interplay between Hollywood and the company that ran the Columbia Pictures back in New York, uh, Culture Clash, and lots of interesting characters, including. Judy Garland's former agent and the poor CEO in the middle who was stuck trying to uh, navigate these various factions. Um, and I'm going to actually recommend my co-author Jackie McNish's book, The Big Score, which is a great, um, a great tale about the battle for a giant nickel deposit in uh, Newfoundland and Labrador uh, called Voises Bay. And it, it's one, it was one of my favorite uh, books for years, actually, uh, from, from Canadian business. It's very entertaining. It's basically about the rise of Robert Friedland, who's this billionaire mining magnet, and how he played everybody uh, over rights to this uh, nickel deposit. It's a lot of fun. I didn't tell you this. I actually read Losing the Signal. It's been a while. 
I mean, not too long after it, and then, and then there was an audible version that ultimately came. I listened to it. So when you said yes to the interview, I went back and reread this again and re-listened to it uh, within the last couple of months. So uh, I, I do have some time invested in this book. <laughs> and I also want to thank you. Uh, some people like to know how the sausage is made. We got to meet before uh, this conversation. And I just appreciate uh, you're a busy person. So again, I'm, I'm impressed with you, your work. And again, I cannot thank you enough for being on the show. Oh, thank you, Mark. This has been a, a great pleasure. You are listening to CFO Bookshelf, lifelong learning for financial leaders. And now back to our host, Mark Gandy. Yogi Berra presumably said nothing is like it seems, but everything is exactly like it is. And that line reminds me of Mike and Jim's stories, the founders of BlackBerry. And if you haven't read Losing the Signal yet, you heard enough near the end to understand what BlackBerry was up against. It's as though this fall was destined to happen. And could the final chapter before these two split have ended up differently? And if so, I'd like to know, and so would Sean and his co-author. Great book, great case study. Again, it's Losing the Signal by Sean Silkoff and Jackie McNish. We need to call this a wrap. I'm Mark Gandy, and this is CFO Bookshelf.